Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Suzanne East Goggins to discuss her book, Policing China, Street-Level Cops in the Shadow of Protest, published by Cornell University Press in 2021. China has the reputation for being a strong security state. After the pro-democracy Tiananmen protests, the Chinese government moved to increase stability maintenance. And that approach is reflected in today's suppression of social unrest in Xinjiang, where somewhere between 800,000 and 2 million members of the Uyghur minority have been interned in camps. Throughout the country, the government has maintained stability by installing millions of cameras. The Chinese and international press emphasize these actions, projecting a view of China as a strong security state. But my guest today argues that the decision to prioritize stability maintenance comes at the expense of everyday policing. In remarkable interviews with police officers and analysis of policing journal articles, she assesses resource allocation, police reforms, and structural patterns of control to find a weak police force unable to protect citizens against violent crime. Policing China provides a more accurate understanding of how the police function in China and how they can be so ineffective at everyday crime management while still being very good at stability maintenance. Dr. Susanne Scoggins is an assistant professor of political science and director of Asian studies at Clark University. She's also a public intellectuals program or PIP fellow at the National Committee on United States-China Relations, and I'm delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. So many of the authors listening know that research doesn't go as planned, that you can find something you don't expect, or the research environment, especially in an authoritarian country like China, might not allow you to get the data that you want. Um, You went to China expecting to write about effective police practices, and I'm wondering if we can start off by uh, talking about how you went to China, what you were expecting to find, and and how this project changed once you got there. Sure. So there were so many uh, there were so many false starts. I think with this project, I I did as much research as I could before I went into the field. I I, I read everything there was, but it's really a limited. Uh, there's limited literature on this. There's a little bit in criminology, some history going back, um, and and based on that, I knew that the police had really limited resources, but I also knew that crime was low. And looking at all the official statistics, I thought there might be some noise there. I thought there might be some underreporting, but I was really expecting to find this story of effective policing. And when I started talking to police officers, when I finally got police officers to talk to me, because that was that in itself is another story of just you know struggle and uh, you know thinking that that my pre-existing contacts would be very very happy to to talk about uh, their jobs when in fact many of them were unable to do so. Uh, when I finally you know got to the business of of sitting down with police officers and I asked them about effective policing, I would just get these blank stares. And, you, you know, they would ask me like, what, like, what do you mean? Or some of them would laugh. And, and, you know, at first I thought that I wasn't asking the question the right way. And I would go back to my dictionary and I would talk to my friends and, and, uh, and it just wasn't there. There, there is no effective police. And I thought that there would be this story of decentralization and, and, you know, people really like these, these officers really finding the, the, a path forward in the face of these limited resources. And that just wasn't the case. And instead I heard story after story about inefficiency and, you know, reforms that were working against them and, uh, you know, higher ups that weren't listening and, and, and problems that, that were on the ground and really made them unable to do their jobs. And I said, okay, so this is, this is the story I have to follow. This is, this is what's really important about policing and everything that I thought I expected to find and, and really had kind of hoped to find because it's a, better story to tell, right? Effective policing, especially in an authoritarian regime, is a better story to tell. Uh, it's a safer story in many ways. Uh, I realized that I, I had to tell this entire other story that that looks at stability maintenance as the success, but essentially every other type of policing responding to crime as as a failure. Okay, you say a safer story to tell. Why, why, why would it be a safer story to tell? 
it's a little bit more positive, right? You can you can talk to someone. So when, when I first did some some uh, pre-dissertation interviews, like way back in 2009, uh, I wanted to talk just about protest policing. And I realized very quickly that, that this made people nervous. Um, you know, talking to police officers, talking to state agents of any kind in an authoritarian regime is difficult. And, you know, there's a lot of distrust. And, and you know, that's one of the reasons why it took me so long. I, I, I spent 22 months on this project over a period of, you know, of, of spanning over a decade. Um, and and I, I, I had hoped to kind of find a, a toehold in that, something that was uh, a, an area that was permissible, that wasn't just about protest. But in the end, uh, I, I, it, that wasn't the story. It wasn't the story to tell. It wasn't the story that was interesting. And it wasn't, it didn't reflect the reality of their lives on the ground. And so I, 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 I wrote this book instead. So we're going to get to the book. That's going to be most of this. But I, I, a lot of people listening do interviews, and a lot of people do interviews in places where it's difficult, where, where, where the people being interviewed have to think very carefully about their own safety and the repercussions that they might suffer with their colleagues or with the government or in, in their communities. So just say a little bit about working in China. And I'm, I'm also wondering about, well, I guess I'll ask you about your next project later, but I, about how you're thinking about returning to China, because that seems to be a real problem as, as China scholars are thinking about their next projects. But, but for the moment, what were some of the challenges to interviewing in China and with this particular group, police officers? Sure. I, I think it's important just to say from the outset that this is not the kind of project that I could do now. Right. This is a project that happened in a very particular moment, in a very particular time and space. And uh, and even then it wasn't easy, even under a period that was relatively more permissive and, and more open for foreign scholars. Uh, I spent a lot of time with human subjects, right, trying to figure out how I could do this in a way that was safe, that was safe for my interviewees, that was safe for me. Um, spent a lot of time, as, a, as, as other China scholars do, in protecting my data and, and carrying um, my files around on a little flash drive that I, that I hid, right, so that uh, nothing would ever be revealed and trying to, 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 to really take as many steps as possible. And also to, to, to give people an out, right, at any point. And, and you know, at several points in the research, I, I had people say, I can't talk to you about this, or, you know, this is not, this is not possible. Um, we have to cancel the interview. And then even after the fact, I had, I had people come back and say, we whatever we talked about can't go on the record and so you really have to you have to be so careful and so respectful of the fact that this is people's lives and you know while it's a research project and it's important and it's your book it's it's not as important as their job and their well-being uh and 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 so it's it, it it's really crucial to respect the constraints of human subjects and and to be careful in the planning right you can't um you can't just do what you want to do. It's 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 very important. Well, let's start with uh, trying to get to what the the sort of the main questions were and and the issue. Uh, you you begin the book with uh, a story of um, uh, of Xiao Hu and uh, a crime that committed that may not be familiar to everybody listening. So, can you can you start with that? incident and how it affected the people in China and and maybe why you opened the book with with that story. Yeah, so it, it took me a while to figure out how I wanted to to to, to start the book, and um, I, I really wanted to to give people a sense of the stakes because you're talking about poor policing, you're talking about ineffective policing, but it's hard to know what that means, right? Especially uh, coming for for an American audience coming from a place where we have over policing, particularly of Black and Brown communities, uh, we have under policing in China, and there are different consequences for that. So I begin the book with the story of. Who was a 17-year-old grocery store clerk, and and she um, she apparently had reportedly had had met a boyfriend online who shows up at the grocery store uh, acting strangely. The uh, one some of her her colleagues they 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 call the cops. The cops come. The man has left, um, and and so they think everything's okay. But then the man who had purchased a knife in the first visit comes back, and and he uh, immediately starts uh, stabbing Xiao Hu. 
school. Uh, and there's there's video camera of all footage of all of this. Uh, there's it, it's it's kind of grainy, but it's still online now. And and so you see, they call the cops back. The cops come in, and they don't know what to do. And it's literally like you or I were to try to stop a murder, right? Like we just don't quite know what to do. And they, 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 they stop at the door, they pause and um, she's, she's being stabbed and she's, she's, she's calling out for help. And, and at one point um, they, they pick up a plastic stool and they throw it at the attacker. Like they just, they just don't know what to do. And, and people are urging them to, to come in to help her to stop. And it's only when, Essentially, she collapses, and 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 um, probably the point at which she dies that the officers come in, and the the attacker starts to attack himself, and and he falls on the ground. That the police are able to to use their pepper spray and and to subdue him, and it's just this terrible terrible story and this this grisly footage and 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 such a, a plain example of of police in action and and people just erupt right it, it gets reported by the local news it starts going across the country and, and people are just so frustrated because what are the police for if if the police can't stop you from being murdered, like if they can't stop that attacker, then what are they doing? What have they been training for? What what what's our public funding like going to? Right. And so there was a lot of frustration with that. And of course, there was an investigation. And and this is why this is really why I start the book with a story, because the investigation finds that the police had done no wrong that there was no protocol that they had to stop this murder and that they had done, that, that, that they got to keep their jobs. And one of them had even been involved in training. And, and that's just the perfect story for what effective policing looks like. Someone gets hurt. There's an investigation. They've done no wrong because the protocols are underdeveloped. Uh, and, and, and people just have to live with this reality. And, and this is really, uh, in terms of worst case scenario, this is what ineffective policing looks like, where the police are unable to do the job that we expect them to do in society. Okay. You've mentioned a lot about their training and it is, it's an incredible opening. It's funny. I read a lot of books now and I read a lot of openings and I'm, I'm more and more conscious of how difficult it is to, to pick something that really will resonate throughout the rest of the book that sets up the problem and the question that the book is answering. And this is an incredible open, you know, opening, you know, grisly and very troubling, but also one that sort of allows you to see this through the eyes of the people in China and their own disgust and upset with it, which I actually think really enhances it. So it's not just a sort of a scholarly example, but also one that's sort of coming from the place, which I I, I loved. But it does everything that you said leads to like, so they weren't doing anything wrong because they didn't have the training that would have allowed them to do this. On the other hand, the kind of footage that we normally see that's not grainy, that is uh, in Chinese press, the American press, European press, all over the world's press is not that kind of a police, a Chinese police officer. It's one that's more aggressive. It's, yeah. it's, we're all familiar with the Tiananmen Square footage. We're, we're, we're constantly fed a kind of a narrative in which the police in China are aggressive, prepared, and ruthless in some sense, in not hesitant in the way that you were just describing. So let's like back up. How do you become a police officer <clears throat> in China, and and what does their training look like? What what are they told is their is their job? Yeah, so it's really interesting. A lot of police officers, a lot of the older police officers were actually members of the army, uh, and that's the older guard that's now retiring. Uh, and then sort of in the middle, people who are sort of in middle aged, a little bit younger, many of them went to policing um colleges or policing high schools, even policing middle schools, they they went in knowing this was uh, a, a profession that was for them. And now the, the police force is trying to reach out and get more university graduates who had not been through those policing programs, those policing schools, uh, to try to get a diversification. But it's still not a very good job. This is really a, a, a lower level civil servant position. So this is much better than something like the Chengguan, where they're not 
not official public, uh, they're, they're not official civil servants. But uh, they, they, they call it an iron rice bowl, essentially, because you know that once you have the job, it's your, it's your job, it's your job for life. Uh, and it, it can be very, uh, that notwithstanding, the fact that it's a difficult job, it's still desirable for uh, a considerable group of individuals. And, and they, they have to take an exam, they have to do an interview. Uh, we know that their social connections make a difference in that interview, but not the, uh, not the exam. And sometimes they have to start out way in the countryside before they move to the city. So they might be from a city, but they have to work in the countryside uh, in, the, in a Pai Chu which is like a local station for uh, you know any number of years. And sometimes they even have to work as contract police before they be- can become a, an official police. Uh, but once, they, once they're able to, to get that iron rice bowl, they can stay as long as they want. Although a lot of them do burn out and they have you know, much higher rates of uh, suicide, uh, you know, liver disease, a, a lot of health problems from the stresses of, of working in the job. So it's, it's desirable, but it's not that desirable. And uh, the ministry officials are thinking about how do, they, how do they keep people on the force who they've already sort of trained and, and, and brought up. And the training itself is, is fairly interesting. There's, there's, um, there's training at the police colleges, but a lot of this and a lot of the, uh, the annual training that they're required to do is really ideological in nature, right? So they're talking about you know, socialism with, communist character, with, with Chinese characteristics and the uh, importance of, of you know upholding the party's goals and and of serving the people and there's not a lot of actual training that we would consider to be useful so you know learning how to shoot firearms is a relatively minor part of their training uh, learning about forensics for many uh, I've, I've been told by many officers is non-existent right they, they just don't have that kind of technical training of what do you do when X happens uh, it's really more that the training process programs, uh, in particular, the, 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 the annual training that they do, if they do it at all, because some of them do it and some of them don't. Some of them, uh, they just, they don't have those opportunities that they're supposed to. It's, it's mandated, but it's not available to everyone. They, they often describe it as a time for them to rest and relax and put their heads down and, and just kind of take a break from the stress of, of the job. Uh, and, 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 and that shows, right? That's, that's also feeding into this problem of poor policing. They're they're being trained on ideology and and not these um, these these technical matters that would help them do a better job and and help them you know respond to crimes like like what happened to Xiaohu. So is is any of that related to funding? Are they underfunded, and this is a response to that, or is this? actually what it is that is the um, declared mission for the police or what it is supposed to look like? And is is there a disjuncture there? Yeah. So that's a good question. It's, it, it, it is underfunding and particularly historically it's underfunding, but in around, Around 2013, 2014, and in, in, in that range, we start to see a lot more funding going toward the police. So the, in general, the stations are underfunded at the local level, but the ministry is able to, to push more funding to funding from the, the local level that comes from local governments is remains underfunded. But the funding that comes from the central government through the ministry, they've been able to increase those amounts that go to stations. Uh, a lot of those a lot of that funding goes toward things like equipment purchases. So these cameras that you're seeing, the the, the police body cameras, um, that's not really going to training because there continues to be a a strong need and preference for this ideological training. Right? This is part of like what it means to be in the civil service. What it means, and this is not just this is not unique to policing. This happens in other bureaucracies as well. You know, you really have to to bring people into the fold and make make sure they understand the party goals and and, um, and 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 stress the importance of that even when it comes at the expense of the the technical details that, that would be so important for uh, for civil servants like police officers who are you know grappling every day with uh, with very 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 difficult problems with the public this has always been the case in China and how long has it been the case in China that this is how police are arranged through the civil service with these priorities and this kind of training and this kind of funding? 
Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. Uh, the the I don't know how far we want to go back, but <laughs> the, the the policing of, of of China 1949 into the communist era, you know, came through came through the the, the Republican era policing, right? That started in the big cities, that started in places like Shanghai, and and was really focused on crime management. But once the communists took over, it became also focusing on uh, rooting out counter revolutionaries, right? Doing some political work. And then there's this big break during the Cultural Revolution because the police were not the arm of the Red Army, right? The police were actually the target of the Red Army. And so many officers uh, stopped doing their jobs. They, they, they left. Uh, many of them were even killed uh, in, in, in large cities like Beijing. There was a number of officers who were killed. And so policing just kind of falls apart in the 60s and 70s. And it's this uh, lost era of policing. And all of that has to be rebuilt in the 1980s, starting in, in 1978 from the reform period. They have to rebuild policing, bring people back. They have to hire officers. And so that's when a lot of people who had been working in the army, in the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, uh, they are no longer needed and they, 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 they're getting older. And so they enter the police force. And it took a long time to really routinize that, which is interesting because when um, when these uh, police stations you know, were, were first sort of rebanding and and repopulating, uh, they had a lot of power. They had a lot of local control, and the ministry saw that as a threat uh, because they couldn't control them, right? If, if, if they're walking around like the, the sheriff in town doing whatever they want, they, the ministry can't control them. And so you see this process of centralization that begins in the late 1980s and really becomes more concrete by 1995 with, with, their, uh, with the police law, where they're trying to, to make sure that there, there, there are more rules, there are more regulations, there are standards for uh, recruitment, and uh, eventually they take their guns away, which is interesting as well to, to, to try to control them. So all of this, this, this idea of the ideology, yes, it, it does go back to the Mao era, right? Like this is, this is sort of classic, uh, classic communist uh, training, but it, it, it serves a modern purpose, which is to professionalize the force, to centralize the force as much as possible and to, 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 to manage any, any sort of local despots or, 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 or local um, uh, abuse of power that they can, because ultimately the party's goal is to stay in command, to stay in control, and they have to have control over the the, the, the local forces, the local government forces, if, if they're going to do that. And, and by, you know, continuing this ideological training, it helps them achieve that goal. Oh, that's great. Thanks so much for going the far back. I know that. I know that's hard to do very, very briefly, but that was beautiful and really and and really useful for putting this in in context and understanding where some of the um, mission, for lack of a better word, or goals come from. China is a huge country. There's an enormous amount of local variation, even though it's centrally controlled. What does police is, is there are there differences across China in in the police and and how did you you know since it is such a big country and one researcher can't go and interview police in every single place how did you decide where to go and how to set up I think it's 115 uh, people that you talk to who are in the police how did you so number one, what, what are some of the variations across the country? And number two, how did you think about those variations as you were setting up the, 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 the research design? Yeah. So I like to call this policing in between because I, I really couldn't get to the places where I initially thought that I could get. I, I thought that I could do research in Beijing and in Shanghai and in, in big cities. I knew that I could never do research in places places like Xinjiang. I knew that anywhere that was just too politically sensitive, I would, I would not be able to do that. And so I think the findings of the book are limited in that regard, that they, it, it's about policing in, in smaller cities and, you know, still like relatively large cities, but not um, not the biggest, like most developed cities and not the places like in Xinjiang where we see uh, the opposite phenomenon of, of, um, of over-policing, particularly of the, 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 the members of the weaker group. Um, and 
this, this of course, was an iterative process, right? I, I started with contacts that I had, um, people that I had met before I started my PhD, um, people that I met after I started my PhD, friends of friends. I, I, I went around uh, asking everyone, essentially, that I knew, you know, do you know any police officers who might be willing to talk to a foreigner? Um, and do you think that they would be, uh, that that would be an okay thing for them to do? Uh, and if so, would you would you introduce me? And so it was a very uh, it's, it's, it's classic snowball sampling in uh, the worst and the best sense of the term, right? You, you, this is, this is, uh, you can't just, you can't just draw a map of China and randomly select the, the police stations where you want to go and knock on their door and say, hi, I'm a foreign researcher. Will you let me, uh, will you let me interview, you know, X number of your officers? You really have to go through social connections. And, uh, and that guided my research. Uh, it guided the, the, the sites that I chose, the, the places I was able to go and, and the places that were off limits to me. Uh, and sometimes I, I, I knew people for years and they knew exactly what I was doing. And and then one day they decide, hey, I've got a cousin, right? Would you like to go to this city? And I said, yes, I would love to go to this city. I'd love to talk to your cousin. Are you sure it's okay? And they said, yes. And so I had a, a number of research sites that opened up that way. Uh, retrospectively, it, it actually worked out okay. I, I have a decent economic variation. I, I went to some larger cities. I went to some smaller cities. Um, there's there's geographic variation as well, uh, which is which is nice. But but all of this was uh, completely entirely dependent on my contacts and on the willingness of, of people to feel like they could talk. And one of the reasons why Beijing wasn't on that list, I, I finally did talk to uh, some 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 officers, including one. Uh, officer who was quite high up in the Beijing police uh, years, years after I had completed the bulk of the research. Uh, the reason is there's a lot of political sensitivity in Beijing and a lot of concern. And, 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 and so even though sort of my best contacts were in Beijing initially starting out, they were the ones who who just didn't feel comfortable and, you know, were happy to, to, to meet for coffee, but just were not able to, to talk about their work. And, and so that political sensitivity, even during a time, because uh, a lot of the research was conducted in 2011 and 2012, right before Xi Jinping takes power, uh, even during that time that was relatively open, this kind of topic was, was off limits in certain cities. And I had to be mindful of that. In a country as large as China, there, there's no, there would be no way to do this. And I, and I actually appreciated in the book in particular and thought it was very useful the way that you grapple with this, the way you're very transparent about how you did it, and as you are here too. But, but you go into further detail. And it, and it is interesting because as scholars from the foreign scholars have to build networks and you can't build a network everywhere. And, and even if you were native to a place, you might have more contacts, but you still couldn't cover a place like China. So I think it's actually, it's an important part of all research, but it's a particular issue for a country as big and diverse and as difficult to work in because of the authoritarian nature of the regime. China. So I, I I love how you did that in the book. I think it's very, very useful for any author or reader to understand that 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 piece. Thank you. Um so you talk a lot in the book about how the, you know, the as you've said, the ineffectiveness of the police, but you also talk about how they are punished, how they are controlled, um, you know, how, how, how it is that they are, um, um, in a sense, policed themselves. So could you talk a little bit about what it is the, the, the police fear if they behave in certain ways, whether they fear dismissal? I mean, you said that it's a, uh, you know, it's an iron rice bowl, but do they also have to live in fear that they, in fact, could lose this job or lose their privilege? Yeah. So, in, in a number of ways, the police are in, in sort of a tight spot, and and um, the first one is sort of the, the ministry's goals of professionalization and, and rule adherence. And there is always uh, an off chance that the ministry, either the central ministry or the provincial ministry, will send a team down to the local station and find them doing something they're not supposed to be doing, and then they get fired. And so, you know, for example, police officers are not for for over a decade now they're not allowed. To 
to drink on the job. They're not allowed to drink at lunch. Uh, but that's very much a uh, integral part of police culture for for <laughs> decades. And it was difficult for officers to stop doing that. And there was one location where I visited and, and some police officers had been fired because the central ministry came in and they were they were essentially like in the station drunk and, and, and asleep. Um, of course, they get fired for a lot of other things as well. Things uh, like if, if, if corruption is found or if there are certain ties that, you know, to, 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 to local local crime that that, that are, um, you know, that are not allowed um, by the ministry, maybe by the local governments, but not the ministry, then they, they can be subject to being fired. Uh, but the real sort of systemic, but th- th- those kind of visits don't happen all the time. That's relatively infrequent because the, just like their manpower restrictions for the local police, like the local level police, there are also manpower restrictions for the provincial and the, the central ministries. Where they really get into to a tight spot is when there's what I call shared control. There's certain crimes that are considered sort of medium priority, not to the extent of stability maintenance and protest control, which is high priority, but these medium priority crimes, things like uh, the drug trade, right, where the, the ministry is interested and invested in making sure that they're, they're implementing central government reforms and expectations. And uh, the local governments may have their own preferences and their own uh, you know, social connections. Oftentimes, this is this is completely um, under the table, but they have they have certain you know rules for or, or expectations of of local police behavior, so that their associates or their friends don't don't get caught up in anything um, in any sort of investigation, uh, despite the fact that they're doing illegal things. This this kind of shared control environment can can really put the the local police in in a tough spot. And in particular, I, I talk about one example that I I think is 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 really interesting in the book, and that's the issue of unannounced raids. So the ministry wants to do unannounced raids. So if there's a, a place where people are suspected of, of, of buying and, and, and selling and using drugs, then they should be, those places should be raided, right? And uh, the local police don't want to do that for a number of reasons. They, they don't want to do that because perhaps local government pressures, because, you know, someone might get caught up who they don't want to be caught up in the investigation. Uh, but also it helped the local police kind of know where the drug use was and in one particular research site, uh, they were forced by you know, ministry officials coming in and, and, and forcing them to, to do these unannounced raids. They were forced to change their habit of essentially calling up the KTV club and saying, hey, we're going to be there 11 p.m. on Saturday night. Make sure everything is all good. Um, uh, they, they, they had to stop doing that. And it ended up pushing the drug users in the city underground to places where they couldn't find them. Uh, and this was, this was very frustrating for the local police because they felt like they, they had lost that knowledge of what was happening. And if they were going to go into a private residence or into a small hotel, that was going to be a much more dangerous situation than if they were able to call ahead and, um, and say, hey, we're coming Friday night, um, make sure everything's okay. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it does put them, you know, sometimes in, in, in a tight spot when, when this control of local governments and the ministry are, is, is being exerted at the same time. So um, we've covered, so this is a very complicated book that we're trying to sort of jam into a very short podcast. Uh, in the book, you really focus and you've focused in the interview on you know three particular areas you know one is resource allocation the other is police reform and then also these these structural patterns um, of control I want to talk a bit about the implications of your findings because that's also part of the of the book yeah. but but before we do have we covered everything that you'd like to cover in the in the main argument or are there some things that you would like to add so I think it's important to, to point out that we're we're not crazy thinking that China has a strong security state, right? Like we're not that's not coming out of nowhere. This is definitely an image that that the state has 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 been projecting and in one particular area is quite successful. And when when I structure the book and, and I was thinking about how I wanted to to divide up the chapters and focus on resources and, and, and focus on reforms and, and, and patterns of control, it was always with a mind of of bifurcating 
stability maintenance, protest control, and everything else, right? Other types of policing, because they really are doing quite a good job. And all of the stories of inefficiency and training, all of that is just does a, a complete 180 when it comes to stability maintenance. There's there's training for stability maintenance. There's there is um, there's coordination, right? They have someone to call. They call the people's armed police when things get out of control. They they have uh, you know really concrete protocols. They have funding specifically stability maintenance funds that can be used to to not just put out a protest, but also to to uh, to bring someone back who's trying to to go and protest in Beijing or in in a, um, in a provincial capital. Uh, all the stories of the underfunding and the, the, the inefficient reforms, all of that is, is quite different for stability maintenance, which is the story that we hear, right? This is what we see. This is, this is what we read about in the New York Times and the BBC. Um, and it's, you, you really can't get another picture of policing unless you go out and you talk to police officers. And, and that was really the, the, the turning point for me in the research when, when, I, when I sat down with enough individuals and understood, oh, these two issues are being treated completely differently. And this is this is because of priorities, um, but it's also because of limited resources, right? Because the ministry officials, when you talk to ministry officials at the central and even the provincial level, they know about these problems. They understand that, you know, the, the, the training is inadequate, that the funding needs to be redirected, that people need to be paid for their overtime work, which they're not being paid for, uh, but they just don't have enough resources to direct to these other, you know, problems of, um, of, of crime control. And as a result, they focus on stability maintenance and these sort of medium priority issues when they have to, uh, and they kind of limp along for the rest of the, for the rest of the areas of policing, which is to the detriment of, uh, of everyone, right? To the officers, to the public, um, to, to anyone who's, who's living the realities of what poor policing looks like on the ground in China. So you mentioned the perception, what you read in the New York Times, and and honestly, I can see that there is an incentive for some of the international journalism to to focus on the, the authoritarian nature of the Chinese state, uh, how it how it is they're suppressing the people, but internal to China, uh, you know, you said that there is a lot of reaction to. Um, uh, to sh- show show who's um, uh, attack, does there continue to be uh, uh, internal dissent? Uh, dissent is probably the wrong word, but criticism of the police and demand from the citizenry that there should be reforms to the police. Like, what is the state of reform within China? Yeah. So the 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 book itself, this 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 particular book is is not able to to really gauge the public reaction. So that that's my next project, right? I really want to understand um, what's happening. But what I do talk about in the book that that I think is important for setting the stage of of sort of the implications of this and 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 what it all means is that. A large number of the protest events, it's nearly a quarter. I think it's 22.5% of protest events. The last time they reported it, which, you know, again, that it's, it's, been, uh, it's been many years now. It's almost a decade ago the last time the state reported it in 2012. Uh, nearly a quarter of the protest events were caused by, by police society conflict, broadly defined. Right, and so the there's censorship. So when anything really bad like like the Xiaohu story happens, um, there's there's censorship and there's um, a, an attempt to control that narrative. Uh, but it, it it the the implication is that it's driving some of these other conflicts. That it's actually these um, these these this this ineffective policing and this poor policing is actually feeding into protests, which is the thing that they care the most about, right? That they're trying to control. And so you have this, this circular loop of, of uh, dissatisfaction and anger and frustration when police do things because they, they need to have these, these really high uh, resolution rates, like crime resolution rates. So they'll do things like they declare a uh, what looks like to be a murder. They declare it a suicide. And so it goes away, right? Because the person is a suicide. 
suicide. Uh, and the, the family gets angry and they riot and people come in and, and they they riot with them because they themselves have experienced the effects of this, this poor policing. Uh, and that's what I'm really trying to quantify in my next project because it's it's uh, it, it's it, it's definitely clearly an issue and it's something that the ministry is 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 thinking about uh, but because again of limited resources it does not look like I've got another project that looks at police reform under Xi Jinping and I thought well let's see if there's any real reform to low policing the the, the crime control that we're talking about versus the high policing the uh, the stability maintenance work and they just you look you go through the reform documents, you talk to ministry officials, they're still prioritizing stability maintenance. They're not prioritizing, right? It's just let's let's head this off at the the point where it erupts. Let's let let's try to stop that protest without actually under like addressing the underlying causes, the underlying reasons for for people's dissatisfaction and frustration and anger. Well, I'm so glad you brought up your next projects, which is where I want to go next. But but before I do that the, what are the implications for your study? I mean, this is this is this is a re- remarkable uh, understanding. Is this new? Was this new to political scientists? Is it new to China scholars? Say just a little bit about how your book kind of changes what we what we know as scholars about about uh, Chinese policing, and and also what the implications are for the state of China that this is the case going forward? Um, is this something that in other cases we know comparatively mm-hmm. can can lead to a problem and what kind of problem? Yeah, so so this is this is definitely um, it was a surprising finding. It wasn't what what I thought would would be uncovered when, when I started uh, when I started the project. Uh, and that's that's kind of important because typically when we look at the different types of Chinese bureaucracies, we think that the police are doing a pretty good job, right? That this is where they've got some more resources, they've got the guns, they're, 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 they're fairly effective. And so to find out that actually they're not effective and they're, they're when, when, when it's decentralized, like things get worse, right? When it's centralized and it's, it's, um, it's protest control, like it, 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 the state gets the outcomes that it desires. But when it's decentralized and people, the local forces are essentially left to cope without all the resources and training, things are bad. This has implications for how other bureaucracies in, in, in China are functioning. And particularly because this is this is bad for so many different groups, right? So it's bad for people. Under policing, over policing is bad for, for people. Under policing is also bad for people. If you can't trust the police to to come when you call and and you know at least attempt to solve your problem, uh, that's 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 really an issue. Right, like if they're not making reports, if they're not, if they're classifying a murder as a suicide, if they're, you know, in one example, I had in an interview, it came out that that a woman had had her house broken into, and the the officer, you know, as long as she would call back to the station and say that it was a mistake, that everything was okay, that he would fix her lock for free, but he wasn't going to make a report, he wasn't going to do anything <laughs> oh else, gosh. but he'd fix her her lock if she'll call back, so that it doesn't get reported and he doesn't have to to, to go through the wow. paperwork. Um, that's not good for for the public, right? That's that's not good. You expect police to 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 do the job of uh, providing security, and and if something goes wrong, to to show up and and try to address your your concern. It's also bad for the police, right? They're stressed. They're they're overworked. These these stations are grossly understaffed. Um, they've got you know more and more uh, cases, more and more expectations. All of these cameras that have been going out and the body cameras. That's just adding more work without the additional training that they have to analyze the footage, right, that, that's coming in. Um, the older officers aren't even, um, aren't, oftentimes aren't even permitted to, to try to figure these things out, the new technology. It's, it's, it's put on, on younger officers. Uh, and, and so it's bad. It's, it, this is why we're seeing those, those, those uh, adverse health effects. Uh, and it's, it's not good for the state either. I mean, ultimately, if, if police ineffectiveness is feeding back into protests, uh, then that has implications for, for regime instability. 
Uh, and we've seen, you know, in, in other areas where where policing has has just gotten, you know, much worse than it is in China, because certainly if, if you look um, in, in other parts of the world, you see policing that is far more inefficient and ineffective. Uh, people's regime preferences change. So in Latin America, there's studies where, where um, they found that people actually prefer more authoritarian styles of governance because, because they, they don't feel safe, they don't feel secure. Um, so this has really, you know, broad sweeping implications. This is not just about a couple of officers being unhappy. This is this is about um, a country that uh, that has a policing problem that, to be quite frank, has only gotten worse during COVID because now, on top of everything else that they were expected to do, they also have to police people with their their quarantine situation and their masking. Uh, and and so I, uh, again, another project I have is 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 looking at these attacks against the police where people just get so frustrated and and um, at these additional responsibilities the police have had to take on during COVID. Okay, so let's talk about your your new research uh, in two ways. First, you know, you've mentioned a couple of projects. So um, uh, lay out how, you know, are they they articles? Are they separate or related? Is this another book project? But also, how do you think you can now do research in China. Um, and, and, you know, and I want to ask you a little bit also about being, you know, a PIP fellow and what that has looked like under COVID. And actually, let me ask that first. So, you know, one of the ideas of the PIP program is to, is to connect, um, you know, good scholarship in a variety of areas, not just political science with the public and to, you know, to travel to China, right? The, the PIP people have normally brought uh, staffers, congressional staffers, to especially people who have never been to China and they've gone and they've spent time and they've gone to offices and they've met people and they've hung out with people like you and others for an extended period of time so that they can bring back to Congress a fuller, richer, more nuanced understanding of this complicated country that pays such an important role in global politics and American foreign policy. So so putting the new research on hold for just a second, what does it look like right now for you to be a PIP fellow and performing this, this role and not being able to travel to China? So I, I think that our I think that the mission of, of the the National Council and, and the mission of the PIP program is is important now more than ever for 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 so many reasons. We're in this we're in this dark period, right? And it's not just COVID. Uh, like lots of research agendas have been upended by COVID, but it's it's it's. It's it's the, the 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 regime under Xi Jinping, and it's the the restrictions on on scholarly access, and there'll be some projects that will that that people can continue, and and you know my research on policing cannot continue in the in the former form, um, and, and and so you know part of the thing that that you know, I'm grappling with that, that other people in the PIP program are also grappling with is, is how do we, how do we continue to shape that narrative, right? Because we can't go to China. We've, the, there, there is a China trip. It is on hold. We hope that if anyone can do it, then <laughs> the national council can, the, the national committee can do it. Um, but we don't know. We don't know if we'll be able to go at, at any point in the future. But the thing that we can do is to go to D.C., Right. The thing that we can do is to travel the country and to to write op-eds and and to put ourselves out there and put our research out there and try to shape that narrative. Because just as China has closed, the United States has really the the Congress and and um, you know other you know people in the policy community have have decided that China is the bad guy and that the only thing that we're going to have bipartisan cooperation on is is China and you know working against China and trying to strengthen ourselves against China and that that it, that's very unnuanced right like that is that is a very sort of cold war mentality that uh, I don't want to see become a reality that that, that others uh, it, other scholars you know particular people who are are thinking about their profile as public intellectuals are that, that they don't want to see happen many of them uh, we want to make sure that that policy is being guided by an accurate understanding of China and so if you think you know from my perspective the security perspective if you think of China as this all-knowing 
growing police state that has cameras everywhere and it's uh, it's big brother and they can control everything. That's just not accurate. Right. Like that's not the reality on the ground. That's not, you know, even with um, even with the the advances that they've been able to make, that's never going to be the case. I've had ministry officials tell me like it's just the the, the from their perspective, the criminals are always going to be one step ahead. Right. Because they have access to even better technology and even better, even better teams. Right. Than 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 people in the ministry do. And so that is a, a limitation. Right. And, and, and when we're painting China as this like, you know, all powerful, all all knowing entity, uh, that's that's incorrect. And it, it, it ends up people, having people be be fearful. Right. And, and, and driving policy. And, and so I think now more than ever, we have to we have to talk about, you know, that that. China looks like a lot of other states, right? That there are these inefficiencies and that things aren't working the way that we think they're working. And, and that, that should hopefully make people understand that, that it's not, um, it, 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 the capacity is not endless, right? And, 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 and hopefully that will, in, for some people, help shape policy and, and help shape decisions and, and help them back off a bit, right? And to, to, to hopefully, again, in the future, travel to China and, and um, have those connections, like have those human-to-human interactions that are, so, that are so crucial for understanding and for de-escalating, right? De-escalating the rhetoric, uh, making us better, uh, better allies, uh, even if it has to be some sort of... Um, uh, some sort of new terminology, right? Not, not, not the, not the traditional Cold War adversaries, but something that is is more collaborative. So, tell us a little bit um, about these. I think I counted three different projects that uh, you're currently working on, and whether they are three streams or they're all part of a book project. Uh, so, so I, I've really uh, because I can't go to China and do interviews any longer. Um, I had a second book project that was planned to, to do more interviews with the public, to do focus groups. Uh, and finally, about maybe nine months ago, I just said, okay, this is this is not going to happen. Um, and in the interim, fortunately, I've been doing a lot of methods retraining. I've, I've, I've been getting into natural language processing, and uh, I'm going to field a survey experiment next month, um, thinking about how do we, how do we get at China when we can't go to China. And to be honest, that's, that's opened up a whole realm of, of possible research projects. So uh, I've, I've uh, reconfigured the second book manuscript, which is, I, I call it Constructing um, State Legitimacy in China, um, looking at the public's reaction to policing and poor policing, and also to the strategies that the Ministry of Public Security is pursuing to try to shape that public opinion. So they put a lot of money, a lot of effort into TV specials, into social media, particularly Douyin or TikTok, um, and so I'm tracking all of this online to understand how they're how how this new what this new propaganda looks like, right? And and how it's reaching people. Uh, and you can you can still you can still field surveys uh, online surveys from a distance, um, and you can analyze the text that people are writing, uh, and and that's that's. For me, that's going to be the path going forward because I don't want to leave policing. I, I, I still feel like there's so much to say. It's it's and it's changing. So it you know someone needs to be doing this work. I want to be doing this work, but the methods have to change, right? You have to look at. Um, you have to look at comments on police videos, right? And and I've got another data set that I've put together of these attacks against the police, where people are um, are engaging in these sort of low profile uh, conflicts, right? Where where they're they're engaging in acts of violence against police officers, and it's remaining online. And it's the it's this kind of material that is that remains available and accessible for for researchers. And we just I think as a field, uh, particularly for those of us who work on these very sensitive topics, we, we have to get smart about our methods and get creative and, and think about how do, we, how do we continue to pursue these questions of interest and, uh, and what does that look like and how do we make it a reality? Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for taking time out uh, in this part of the semester to, to talk to us. Um, I've been talking to Suzanne Scoggins about Policing China, Street-Level Cops in the Shadow of Protest, published by Cornell University Press in 2021. Thank you, Susan. (laughs) 